We're going to go ahead and get started if you want to find a seat. Um, last week, if you were here, we, we started into John 15 here. as it's, a, it's this thing called the farewell discourse. It's Jesus saying goodbye and talking to his guys about how they need to live and be faithful once he's gone. And we're kind of continuing with that same passage as Jesus instructs them about how they need to relate to God and to one another. And this is what he says. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And then he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. That's, the, that's our passage for today. Okay, so I learned something this week that sort of made my head spin around, and I want to try to share it with you. But to do this, what you have to do is take your finger, just take one finger and hold it really close to your face and look at it with just one eye. Um, just look at the tip of your finger, right? Really close to your face. And now switch eyes. Did you see it shift? And now switch back. And just kind of go back and forth, toggle back and forth. It moves, right? It's like... It's flipping. Okay, now reach your arm as far out as it'll go, as far as you can make it, and now do the same thing, one eye and then the other. It moves, but not quite as much, right? Now bring it in again, do it. Look how much it moves, and then do it far away. It's different, right? Okay, one more little exercise. Um, everybody look at me with one eye closed. Close one eye, and then take your finger and sort of put it right under my chin, however far away that is. Okay, now switch eyes. Did the finger move? Yeah, weird, right? Okay, now, now keep that eye. Now move the finger over so it's back under my chin, and now switch eyes again. Did it move to the other side? If not, you need to get your head checked, right? Okay, so, so thank, you, thank you for playing along. What we're playing with here is um, an aspect of this human faculty called binocular vision, and the way this thing works kind of gave me the freaks this week. Um, this is how we perceive things like um, height and depth and, and motion. And it happens in part because we have two eyes, but also because we have two eyes that are about um, 7.5 centimeters apart. And they're offset like this, so they produce two slightly different images. And then we have this gift because we also have a brain that can combine those in a way and kind of measure the difference between those two images and then draw conclusions based on what they're seeing. It's actually a little more spooky than that. So I want, I want to give you, uh, just show you a picture of some markers that are sitting on a little shelf. 
And this will help us understand why. So these are placed in a, in a straight line. And this is roughly the picture that you would see if you were just standing in front of them, except it would be three-dimensional, right? And the weird thing is that this is not, if it was in 3D, this is not actually what you see with your two eyes. Um, the retina in each eye is set up to see a flat, two-dimensional image, each eye from kind of a slightly different perspective, about seven and a half centimeters apart. So when you look at the markers from at least a few feet away, your right eye sees something like this. And your left eye sees something like this. These are the two perspectives on that straight line from these few centimeters apart. Each eye, is a, each eye has kind of a slightly different point of view of the same image. And what happens is our brains combine those two images into one three-dimensional image. Now, here's the part that freaks me out. At no time do either one of your eyes actually see that middle image. They see only what's on the sides. The middle image is generated by your brain as it interlaces these two images and creates a focal point and fuses them into a three-dimensional image. That is closer to reality than either eye is seen in, in like, solo on, on its own. I don't know why this gives me the freaks. Does that freak anybody else out? I mean, this means that my whole life, what I think I have been seeing is not what my eyes have been seeing. It's what my brain generates combining these two images from about seven and a half centimeters apart into one image that isn't real. It's just... It's made up in our head. It isn't real, but is closer to reality than what we actually see with our eyes. This is why this, this is why my brain was broken this week. But wait, there's more. Um, like an info, like infomercial. Wait, there's more. On top of that, our brains are constantly comparing these two images from our two eyes and assessing how much disparity is there, and then using this sensory data to help us navigate reality. So like from far away, your finger doesn't jump as, quite as much as it does from up close. Well, our, our brain can sense the difference in that disparity. And, and when you're looking far away, like look out the window at some object way out there and change your eyes, it, it's not that much different. And your brain knows when that happens, this thing is far away. And when there's this big disparity, like you almost had to cross your eyes to look at your own fingers, your brain says, this thing is really close. And furthermore, when an object is in motion, our brains can, in real time, take those two images, fuse them, calculate the disparity between the two of them, and the rate at which the disparity is changing, and do this so quickly that if someone were to, say, hit a baseball off a bat at you, you could assess the speed, the trajectory, just by looking at it, anticipate where the ball is going at like 100 miles an hour, and if you're, you've done this before, intercept the ball, where, get to where the ball is going to be in the future and, and catch it. And this is why we can do things like play catch and run through a forest or drive a car or thread a needle or pour liquid or all kinds of complex functions without even thinking about it. This is, this is pretty amazing. And all of those things actually become very complicated 
for the many people who don't have good binocular vision. Either they, they lost vision in one eye or they, they, their eyes don't track right. In fact, um, in the game of baseball, over the past 150 years, where there's been Major League Baseball in America, there have been 19,902 different Major League Baseball players. And in that time, only one of them has ever had vision in only one eye in 150 years. His name was Whammy Douglas, which is a great name. If somebody names their name, kid Whammy, I'm going to be so happy. Whammy Douglas. Um, he lost um, one eye at the age of 11, but he loved baseball. And he wasn't a very good hitter, but he was a killer pitcher and worked his way all the way up to the, the major leagues in 1957 with the Pittsburgh Pirates. I mean, that's how important this gift of binocular vision is to us. Only one player in 150 years ever made it to the MLB with one eye. There's actually a kid right now with the Giants organization in AAA. There, he might be the second. He's a pitcher, too. You think about all the things that are possible, all the complex aspects of reality that are discernible to us because we have this ability. Because the brain can interface these two separate weird visual images and generate then one coherent picture of the world in three dimensions. This is stunning. And when you add that it can judge the disparity between the two and sense motion and instantaneously calculate the rate of change and predict where things are going to be, it's, it's, it's crazy. Okay, so here, here's the analogy that I'm making. I think that my view of reality as Tim is sort of like the view from one eye. And the same is true of you and your view of reality. The way each of us sees the world, it's, it's limited to our perspective, our situated kind of vantage point and experiences, which is, is two-dimensional at best and probably not all that accurate. And so it's only as we learn to bring our perspective on reality together with that of another person and then try to interlace them, try to fuse them together somehow and compare them and, and judge the disparities. It's only then that we come anywhere close to a three-dimensional picture of the world that can help us anticipate where things are headed and then navigate the world wisely, right? Adjust even our reality to align more closely with where God is taking the world. And I think that Christ's understanding of humanity was that by ourselves, we just don't have a very accurate picture of reality. It's not bad, it's, but it's limited. And I think that Jesus' way of talking about love and the human capacity for love is kind of analogous to, to the brain and, and its ability to fuse these two perspectives together into one and to come away with that from that with this better picture of reality and this better ability to navigate it together. And, and for Christ, love is the key. It's not just like the warm, fuzzy feeling or something that makes you feel safe or enjoyable thing. Love is actually the only way to come to know the true nature of reality. Because love requires us to see reality not from just one perspective that's tied to our own identity, but from the perspective of difference. Jesus really seemed to think that the only way to view the world accurately and navigate the world faithfully was to see the world through the eyes of love. 
Only lovers can know the world, can know reality in 3D. Now, love's a confusing thing to talk about in our day. I mean, we live in this consumer culture where everything is, is evaluated on a, a cost-benefit um, relationship, right? A ratio. So, so consumer love is about maximizing benefit, right? Love then becomes kind of self-serving. In that world, the cost, if the cost of love outweighs the benefit, then most people will kind of, they'll, they'll bail out. But Jesus here in our text, he builds this notion of love on a completely different foundation. One that says, no one has greater love than this. They would actually lay down their life for a friend. And so so consumer love and Christian love, they're dramatically different. They have different foundations. One of the most um, persistent issues in Christ's day, and really any day, it it still is today, is this idea that life is somehow absurd. What I mean by that is that we have this longing in this sense that life is meant to be meaningful, and yet as we go through life, it feels like life reality is working against us. It's thwarting what we're after, this idea of that life should be meaningful. That's absurd. And it, it makes life appear kind of harsh and, and cruel and disappointing. And it's easy to think there's not really any meaning or any point to it. And many have looked at this and said, so, so the idea is you got to just find a way to put meaning into life yourself. And you do this um, by deciding for yourself what life means, what reality is for you. We're told be true to yourself. Realize your potential. Experiment with your life. Try as many options as you can. Um, Don't get boxed in. Don't let anyone else define you. And the problem is, if that is our worldview, then love, as Jesus described it, self-sacrifice, actually becomes an obstacle to meaningfulness. Because meaningfulness is, is getting what you want, not laying down what you want. And yet we have like thousands of years of like art and poetry and music and literature and philosophy and theology, plus the whole Christian tradition, all of it attesting to this reality that that kind of selfish attempt at finding meaning can accomplish all kinds of things, but cannot help us find love. Mostly it helps us um, effectively distort reality around us to conform to our our vision of the world. You know, trying to bend other people to our agenda. So meaningfulness in our culture, in large part, is, is something akin to find yourself, right? And that's why we're consumed with, like, self-enhancement and life hacks and, and you know, self-help stuff. And it's why so many people we know create these kind of reality distortion fields around them everywhere they go. If you don't bend to that agenda, they want nothing to do with you. And so life kind of of becomes competitive, like a competition. If meaningfulness is thought to occur like when, when my agenda prevails. We have thousands of years of data telling us that this actually doesn't work. And what Jesus is sketching out is meaningfulness in the kingdom, which is something like lose yourself. Lay down your life for your friends. Join your reality up with someone else's. 
and try to see if you can fuse that worldview a little bit. And, and what happens is, as you kind of lose your agenda as a solo deal and couple it with someone else, they gain a fuller picture of reality, a better perspective. It's three-dimensional. And this ability to navigate a world that's moving really, really fast. And really, the difference between those two visions of, of the world is love. Now, when Jesus is talking about love here, it's not talking about romantic love or just like um, friendship love. It's, it's the overarching love that subsumes all forms of love. But if you take like romantic love as an example, in consumer love, what, what we're told is pick a mate who will be the most beneficial to you in terms of you getting what you want out of life. Pick someone who will promote your vision for your life and the world. And if they ever start to work against your vision in, in a way that erodes your ability to get what you want, then you should probably leave, find someone new. And there's a huge problem with this, and Jesus is not the only one who noticed it. I mean, it's been written about constantly. In fact, there's this great um, philosopher. He's an old, old man today. I love his work. He's called Alain Badu, and he's written a lot about love. And he says that the one essential quality about love is love is always a fall. In fact, he says that in every language that has a word for love, they have some phrase in that language for falling in love. It's just universal. Love is a fall. Badu calls it a permanent state of emergency. Remember back the first time you were ever in love? Permanent, like a permanent state of emergency, right? Because it's a threat to our version of reality. To love is to dare to try and fuse what you thought was reality with someone else's take on reality, with another human being. And, and this means to lose a lot of the certitude of our own agenda for the sake of relationship, believing that relationship can help us see the world more rightly. There's something about love that sort of forces us to try and view reality from another point of view, from the, from the point of view of difference, you might say, instead of just identity. And this feels like falling. From the view of otherness or difference or perspective, it, it, it feels like falling. When, as the brain tries to, to fuse these different um, images of reality, what happens is it unleashes this whole potential, human potential, into our lives. Why? Because encountering the world through difference, which love requires, teaches us that by ourselves we don't really see reality very well on our own. That's why it feels like a permanent state of emergency. Love is to admit I can't see the world without help. Now, Jesus was not claiming this was easy or automatic. In fact, um, seeing the world through difference can be quite disconcerting. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a country where nobody speaks English and you're the only one, you've, you've felt this tension. Then. How can you navigate reality when nobody speaks your language? Well, you have to find someone who's willing to, to take your language and their language and sort of hold them together and then help you navigate reality. This is a profound act of brotherly, sisterly love, right? Obviously, um, 
with this. There's, there can be a problem where self-sacrificial love becomes like abusive, you know what I mean? Where one person takes advantage of the other. The, the, things like racism, patriarchy are evidence of this, where people want to just subsume someone else. Jesus makes it clear that's not what he's talking about. He said, I don't call you servants. This isn't a master-slave relationship. I'm not trying to use you for my agenda. I'm calling you friends. I'm telling you everything. My commandment is love one another. If you're my friend, then this is how you'll live. Don't move against difference wherever you find it. Don't try to change difference to conform to your reality, but embrace difference. Hold the tension and learn how to love, and you will finally be able to see the world as it really is. And I think this is really the problem with love in our culture. We're taught to see love as whatever helps us have like the ultimate life. But Jesus really taught that love is, um, love is what wrecks us. It's what challenges our view of reality. And we don't want to be wrecked, right? Love is a fall. We don't like falling. In fact, there's this philosopher, Slavo Žižek, who says that the Western agenda for love is how to find yourself in love without falling in love. We want to love without the fall, without risk, without vulnerability. He, he, he says that it's really, shouldn't be, this shouldn't be a surprise because in the West, um, we want everything without the fall, everything without the downsides. We have coffee without caffeine. We have beer without alcohol. We want food without calories. We want sweets without sugar. So, of course, we want love without falling, right, without exposure, without risk. We want love without difference. It's not a thing. That's not a thing that happens. Love is risk. Love is vulnerability to the other. Jesus says trying to have love without the fall, it's like it misses the very nature of reality. Love, he says, is learning to lay your life down for a friend. And love, man, it's like, it's like the brain's ability to fuse these two pictures into one, right? It's like learning to see reality from the point of view of difference and otherness. And it's only in that decentered state, disturbed and disconcerted, that we actually begin to, to figure out that in getting to know the other, we're actually getting to know reality itself. The only way to see reality accurately is through love. But you can only discover this by loving. You can only discover this truth by, by loving. And for those who have never loved, who don't know how to love, everything that Jesus said was nonsense. It's just nonsense. Jesus said, I'm giving you a new command. It's not that I'm erasing the ten. I'm just saying, I'm giving you a new command that supersedes this. Love each other. And then he said, abide in my love. And then he said, and what my love is like is this. Lay down your lives for your friends. And then he kind of explained within this passage why he's even telling this in, in the first place. He said, the whole reason I'm giving you this is because I'm trying to help you get what you wanted all along, which is some kind of meaning 
in your life. He said, I'm, I'm telling you this so that the joy you see me having can be in you too. And then your joy in life will be complete. It'll be real. It'll be actual. It will be part of your reality. Not that you know, joy doesn't mean everything works out perfectly. It's just that in its imperfection, it's, it's amazing. It's good. Jesus was trying to help them connect with this deep reality that love is a fall. It, it, I mean, it's a loss to lay down your life for a friend. It just is. But what we find within that, that is this vision of the world that actually matches more closely with reality. It's like binocular vision. This, this human sensibility comes online when we love, and it frees us to navigate and play and encounter and engage. And because love gives us this fuller picture of reality and the idea of to, the ability to sort of measure where reality is headed and meet it there and then move it back toward what Jesus calls the kingdom of God, the world that God imagines. Oh, man, this is why we were created. This is what it means to be human. Love, love is a fall, for sure. Love is a fall. But what we fall into is reality. What we fall into is a meaningful existence. What Jesus called the eternal kind of life, a life that's so alive it never, it never ends. There's this great um, early... 20th century Catholic priest and mystic. His name was Pierre Telhard de Chardin, who, who put it this way. He said, someday, after mastering the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we shall harness for God the energies of love. And then for a second time in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. I love that. Deschardins is telling us we're, we're, we're looking all the time at how jacked up our world is, and we're all looking for answers. How is this going to change? How will this get better? And this, this simple teaching of Jesus, it's like the last thing he said to his guys before he was arrested. The simple t teaching was, the answer you're looking for is really simple. It's It's love. Life will get better when you learn how to love. The problem is, we have to fall. We have to lose. And that's, that's hard to do. He's saying that if we ever tried to do this, to love the way Jesus said, lay down our lives for each other, it would be unprecedented. It's, it would be like discovering fire again. It's that transformational. We run around trying to master the wind and the waves and the tides and gravity. But if we could ever master love, harness for God the energies of love, he said, it's like discovering fire. And so, Redemption Church, to be the people of God in the world, it really is to pursue love as a way of life. And pairing with each other trying to learn to see the world from a different perspective and holding those intention, judging the disparity, watching the trajectories of the world. This is, how, this is how we come to be part of the kingdom of God.
the world that God imagines. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for um, this farewell discourse. Jesus taking all of this time, chapters 14, 15, 16, 17 of John, just to explain to his guys how central love is. And I'm grateful for this deep, deep wisdom. I pray that all of us would have the courage to love. Not to bend the world to our imagination for it, but to bend our lives um, to make space for difference for the other. And in that relationship, to see you, to see our God, to see reality in the kingdom. Pray that this would be the story of our lives. Amen. Um, would invite you all to stand, and we're going to receive communion. If you didn't um, receive the, the little shrink-drapped elements, the COVID elements, um, if you don't have those, Beth is right here in the center in the back, and she can hook you up. Um, but if you do have them, if you would just hold them in front of you, and we're going to bless them here in a moment. Um, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he shared it with his guys. They passed it around one by one, drinking from it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, a new deal between humanity and God established in my lifeblood. He said, so as every time you get together, as long as you meet in my name, eat this bread, drink this cup, Take my life into your life and remember who you are. Remember what it means to be human. And so this is why we receive communion every week. We receive his life into our life one more time. So if you would just hold the elements in front of you, let's pray a blessing on them. Lord, we give you thanks for the bread and the cup. We pray that it would be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive them into our body, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. We invite you to receive communion and then join us in singing our closing hymn.